Welcome to Illiterate. My name is Evan. My name is Taylor. I read a book this week. I actually did a lot of stuff this week. I watched more than a couple docs, some podcasts. I was on it this week, Taylor. <laughs> I'm lit about this. Yeah, so tell us. The book is called Chaos. Charles Manson, the CIA, and the Secret History of the 60s by Tom O'Neill. This is a brand new piece of publication. Came out in June. This is hot material. Obviously timed to be in close proximity <laughs> right. with the Tarantino film, which I've now seen twice. And the 50th anniversary. And the 50th anniversary, which is today, the day that we're recording this. Pretty neat stuff. Yeah. Uh, so I'm excited to, to hear all about that. Uh, now, th tell us just a, a, a short breakdown of the book, because this obviously by the subtitle goes further than just the Manson murders. Right. So we were looking into this because we wanted to do something relevant to our listeners and the zeitgeist of what's going on. Mm -hmm. And Helter Skelter is the book written by the DA and the prosecutor for the Charlie Manson murder situation that happened in the late 60s. That's the book that everybody knows. We're like, nah, we ain't trying to read something that everybody Everybody knows we're trying to dive deep. So this book just came out and it's this journalist's decades-long experience with uncovering more secrets and threads and different things that happened that go counter to the narrative presented in Helter Skelter, which is lauded as the Bible of exactly what happened piece by the piece last in the 20 court. years helter skelter has definitely come under fire as being the the account and the truth it's the um, best-selling true crime book of all time yeah uh it has absolutely garnered attention and has definitely taken on fire the last 20 years about how accurate it is how biased these parties really are so I, I, that's what one thing I'm really interested to hear what's in chaos and what might be counter to or expanded upon. And I think mm -hmm. the, the biggest mystery of just the things that we can't know. And there will be some rabbit holes and it's nothing is he's basically like, hey, this isn't about what actually happened. It's about like what also might have happened. Mm -hmm. So nothing that I say here is like, well, this is definitely because there's people that are also like, yeah, I forgot. or Oh, yeah, that was 40 years ago. Or, you know, everybody's biased and things can be misconstrued, especially if you're reporting years and years and years right. later from the scene, let alone people in the moment right. on trial. So it was just very interesting to see all of the different angles and some of them you might be like, well, that sounds insane. And it's like, well, probably. But the whole thing was insane anyways. <laughs> but Helter Skelter, just so people know, is based off the Beatles lyric. And it's Charles Manson's kind of manifesto, like semi-spiritual religious overtaking of the status quo, race, riot, war kind of mm -hmm. mentality mm -hmm. that was mm -hmm. posited as the reason and main motive for why these murders took place. I also, on, uh, off the top, say there probably will be major spoilers for Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. So just want to preface that if you haven't seen the movie, that we're going to be covering some of that. So yeah, and spoilers for the Manson murders if you don't know. Anything if you about don't know, it. people die. Buckle up. Yeah. So the book is Tom O'Neill, and it starts by talking to Vincent Bugliosi in 2006, who is the guy who was the DA who prosecuted, wrote Helter Skelter, all that stuff. Because apparently Tom O'Neill found documents in Vince's handwriting that he'd lied under oath, mm. allegedly, based on what had been written. Yeah. But he doesn't disclose what that is yet. And this guy, Tom O'Neill, has interviewed over a thousand people. He's really worried that he's starting to become a conspiracy theorist. And Tom is saying he's not an apologist for Manson by any means. Mm -hmm. Because you could wonder, like, oh, well, why is somebody so concerned with figuring out what actually happened? He doesn't want... Off the bat, he's like, nah, he's a horrible, evil person. <laughs> 
but I'm just curious why or what other things might be missing. Right. That was the last time he talked to Vincent, didn't really get anything from him, and then he died in 2015. Manson also died in 2017. Basic, yeah. yeah. And so basically the whole thing he's saying, all I was trying to do with this book is bring to light that much of what we accept as fact is fiction. So then the start of the book going way, way back to where it all began in 1999. It's Tom's 40th birthday. It's also the 30th anniversary of the Manson right. murders. And so he's working for a magazine in Los Angeles, in Hollywood, and his editor wanted him to do like an ho a Hollywood angle on the piece in time mm -hmm. for the 30th anniversary in 1999. And as he's writing, I mean, it's now a book, the magazine's gone, he's still in LA, Good he was Lord. just there for a short thing and then was going to go back to New York, Oh my gosh. and then it consumed his, it entire, consumed his life. entire life. But the big question is why and how did these people devolve into criminals? Yeah. So the actual murders that happened... Just for our listeners, very briefly, August 8th of 1969, Roman Polanski was a famous director at his house. There was Sharon Tate, who was his wife, who was pregnant, and various other people got murdered by this hippie cult run by Charles Manson, although he wasn't there in the moment. And then there was another random murder at a house in Los Feliz. And for four months, the police had no idea who did this. It was just a very grisly, so many stabbings, mm -hmm. pig written in blood on the walls. And there was what they would call like a hippie fear after that. Because hippies were perceived yeah. after, in, you know, in the 60s and the summer of love in 67 and all that. As yeah, just this is this. perceived to be the defining death of the hippie movement, right. the summer of love. Mm -hmm. uh, this this is it. And there's a there was a book that he references called The Hippie Trip, which I'll put a link in the show notes if you're mm. interested. It's by this guy, Louis Yablonsky, mm. which is very similar <laughs> to my last name. Uh, as opposed to somebody like in these kind of books where they're postulating afterwards, it's like he was there in the moment as a sociologist embedded in the hippie movement trying yeah. to understand stuff. Yeah. So if you wanted a bigger context for the hippie culture cool. from a sociologist, okay, yeah. the hippie trip Very is cool. the book to go after. So then the trial happens for those murders in 1970, prosecuted by Vince, who we mentioned before, mm -hmm, who wrote Helter mm -hmm. Skelter. However, an interesting thing that I didn't realize was Manson and Vince are the same age. They're 35 years old oh, wow. at this moment. But Vince looks 20 years older. <laughs> and because he's in the suit and because he's the, he's the prosecutor, it looks That's like he's an old man in control of the situation. I but they were the that. same age. Yeah. Or Vince is actually is just like a month old. I would or never have even guessed that. Yeah, yeah. That, that's shocking. Actually, it's, it's wild just to think about it. Yeah, but again, the big question is you have to implicate Manson in this, saying that oh he brainwashed them. Yeah. But then they also have to be tried for the death penalty, so it couldn't have been so brainwashed. You know, that they didn't know that what they, they were, were doing, right? Or like yeah, patriotism yeah. or something, where it's like there was another. You have to get right in the line of like they knew what they were doing, but they were under a false pretense of reality. <laughs> yeah. The question is, how can a barely literate ex-con take a librarian, a high school football star, and then a recent prom queen? Right. You know, these girls yeah. were young and turn them into murderers in less than a year. How did how did he know how to do all this stuff potentially? These are the questions that come up. So right. going back to the very, right. very beginning, and then this is where Once Upon a Time in Hollywood comes in. The first angle is for this guy's article, Tom O'Neill, before the book became anything. How did the crimes change Hollywood? Mm -hmm. Because this happened in Los Angeles. It happened at the house of a notable director. Oh, the, There's the lots biggest of Hollywood director at the time. Um, yeah. And heavily in the film, Sharon Tate is kind of a, presented as a heartbeat. She doesn't really interact with our main characters at all. Mm -hmm. And she goes about her life. 
but she's there to represent uh, the new age of Hollywood that is now thrust upon him. The DiCaprio and Pitt characters are representing the age of Hollywood that is now being kind of recycled out, coming down off of their careers, while Sharon Tate and Polanski are just on their ascension. I think what was going on, and we'll get more into what was going on with Manson, I think actually it, it being her, them, that house, even by accident, is still almost beautifully on point. Yeah, so one of the angles that then immediately people come off of, there's this guy named Melcher, who is a music producer, who had helped and produced a bunch of stuff and was involved with the Beach Boys. Yeah. And so we're going to be spouting out a lot of names and a lot of people. The and Beach Boys have a lot to do with this. It's, it's weird. It's weird how the implications between everybody connecting, and I'll even throw some links in that people might not be aware of, and this is how this journalist, Tom O'Neill, is putting all these things together and being like, oh, this is the web that I'm drawing on my whiteboard is now just like a solid color because yeah. of all the lines and yep. tapestry of how it all connects. But this Melcher guy, who's his music producer, lived at the house before Roman Polanski. The other angle that they're going off of is like with this Helter Skelter thing, the Black Panthers. Manson was very racist, was trying to ignite a race war, was getting back at white Hollywood for siding with the more left-wing liberal mm -hmm. agenda mm -hmm. of those groups, whether they were black or not. But in Tom O'Neill's estimation, he, as he's talking to these Hollywood people, he's like, nobody believed the Black Panther angle. Right. But also nobody really was talking to the police or that he was just surprised by the amount or rather lack of information that these Hollywood people knew about what was right. going on yeah, and how yeah, it was yeah. all intertwined. And Manson maybe was at parties with people. And it's like, nobody right. knew anything. Going off of kind of like how the Hollywood crew was not being involved. This is what Tom O'Neill is bringing to the forefront. Yeah. A lot of the stuff, and I don't have the specifics of what isn't and, and is in Helter Skelter, but a lot of these things and the people that he's talking to and the moments that he's uncovering are either not brought up in Helter Skelter or minimized entirely <laughs> or are subverted around. So that's where great, great, if you're great. looking at, okay, well, how is this different from any of the other narratives? Basically, all of the stuff that I'm going to be saying from here on out are like not filtered through Vince Bugliosi's story as the lawyer prosecuting this stuff. Uh, so the three big questions that Tom O'Neill brings up about the Hollywood angle is what did the victims have to do with the killers because they were Hollywood mm -hmm. people and then some random person? And then if Melcher, who was this producer who was potentially in with all of this stuff going on and knew the Beach Boys who then maybe were going to produce songs with Manson. How did he fail to report any of this stuff? Why couldn't the police figure it out for four months? Yeah. If there was a lot of people that potentially knew right. what was going on. And then were the police aware of Manson and they didn't say anything. Right. Because of some Hollywood interest. Right, right, right. Um, and so there was a quote where he was saying, toilets are flushing all over Beverly Hills because the police were looking for stuff and they're like, everybody's got drugs, everybody's got, you know, they're trying to get rid of stuff. And maybe that was a cause of why nobody was saying anything and it took them so long. Right. Because everybody had other right. vested interests or they were worried about themselves. And so Polanski had kind of this motto at his house, live freaky, die freaky. And that's why a lot of people thought, oh, Roman is going to be the first person to be a suspect right, in this. Right, You know. Um, oh, he's conveniently not there <laughs> shooting a movie in England? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 
Uh, and there was stuff with him of spousal abuse, and then he has a bunch of problems well, and later they bring on up in life. In, uh, They bring up heavily in, in uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood that the dynamic between him, Sharon Tate, and Jay Sebring, mm-hmm. the hairdresser, yeah. uh, was not exactly the most straightforward, clean-cut relationship. Yeah. Um, it was very sticky. So, uh, just yeah, feeding so Tom O'Neill talks was. to this guy, Little Joe, who was Jay Sebring's kind of protege. Jay Sebring was a professional okay. hairdresser yeah, yeah, of yeah, Hollywood. Yeah that also got murdered there was also some random polish guy named kazanowski who got was just like drugged Hanging up out. sleeping on the couch because yeah. this was like a party house for all sorts of hollywood elites Going over the Polanski's tonight, you know, yeah whatever. there was a constant churn of people and parties but this little joe guy who tom o'neill did get to talk to said that you know jay sebring was certainly involved with the mob because the mob called him and was like you'll be okay mm. it was like why would the mob say hey you'll be okay unless they were also somehow involved in what was going on, or were they just theorizing that somebody had done something? There, mm-hmm, the, a big mm-hmm, theory yeah. that is counter to the Helter Skelter stuff is that it was based on drugs, and Charlie Manson was involved in that kind of thing, and there was something gone sour, or there was issues with drugs in the house, and somebody didn't pay up and whatever, and then they got tasked with murdering mm-hmm. them. And oh, that's why the Hollywood uh-huh, story uh-huh. got suppressed, because everybody was involved with the mob and drugs and the hairdresser. How and the, fascinating. And I could stuff. believe that. I could believe a, a 100% totally different narrative of the of the entire yeah. event. Absolutely. I mean, um, the, the idea that... I don't know the classic idea that they're that they're walking around in in burglar uniforms and and just kind of like and we're just gonna get the Hollywood pigs. You know, yeah, it's like it seems a little too uh, literary. Yeah, it seems a li- yeah. You know, it's a little too cliche. It's a little too immediately what mm-hmm. you think of. I yeah. don't know. Uh, so I could see this totally being an accident and then made to look like something else, and it totally gets blown out of proportion. Yeah, and the question then. The Helter Skelter book doesn't really have a lot of these angles at all. And so that's fine for a book. You know, like you can make that editorial choice or is it helping people by not discussing a lot of these questions brought up? But Tom, well, uh, yeah, it, yeah. it's it's different being the prosecutor of the trial. Right. If it was anybody else writing a book, I could say, yeah, whatever, you write whatever you want. Mm-hmm. But people are going to look to him to have the truth. And well, have, he's supposed you know, to be having all the evidence right. and knowing all the different angles. <laughs> so, And so that's the big question as we go more into the Hollywood stuff. So we're going back to this Terry Melcher guy who's the music producer who said on the stand that he met Manson only three times. And O'Neill's saying that that is, according to his research, a blatant fabrication from some evidence that we'll go into in just a moment. But if you are are interested in this Hollywood angle and you're not as into the Once Upon a Time in Hollywood or just want more information, there's a podcast called You Must Remember This, Mm. which is about Hollywood and Hollywood stories and old Hollywood and stuff like that. And they have a series on the Manson murders if you want those kind of angles. Very cool. But now we're going into Dennis Wilson, who's one of the Beach Boys. Here we go. And he let Manson, the family... And all of them stay at his thirty-one room house. This is this I, is common I watched knowledge. This, uh, this yeah. documentary made in the two thousands called uh, "Cease to Exist." It's mm-hmm. about the Manson family, and it starts off with basically how Manson was led into that realm of Hollywood, and mm-hmm. Dennis Wilson being the nexus. Basically, he picks up two prostitutes and takes them back to his house. Yeah, lo and behold. He doesn't know they're part of the Manson family. He goes out, does recording stuff that day, comes back. Charlie and about 20 other people are at his house with those girls. And that's just about his new life now. Because Dennis Wilson, if you don't know anything about Dennis Wilson, 
The Wilsons are fascinating. The Beach Boys are fascinating. It's a horrible, horrible, depressing story. That's yeah. a whole other thing. But Dennis Wilson in that family was particularly looked to as the mess up. Right. He, he was the... The freak. The freak. Yeah. And lo and behold, he leads the Manson family right into the Hollywood ranks. Mm -hmm. This is the nexus for it. This yeah. is how this really kicks off. And you said the documentary is called Cease to Exist. That was the name of a song yes. that they had recorded that was going to go on a B-side. Then the title got changed. Manson's credit got removed. And some people then think, oh, well, he was head of... This is why he had a vendetta right. against these types of people because yeah, he did want to be Cease to Exist a was a Charlie Manson song that Dennis Wilson took to the Beach Boys. The Beach Boys rearranged it and changed a bunch of stuff and then took the credit from Charlie Manson off of it. So it was just like you're saying, that's, that's widely believed to be at least some of the motivation in this but so as we look at all of these connections with melcher as well associated with them he being the one that previously lived at this house o'neill's not able to talk to melcher because there's a lot of people that deny him over yeah. the years and years and years but maybe he gets back to him but he talks to the landlord of that house huh? altabelli and he was saying yeah manson came up to the house in march looking for melcher mm -hmm, mm -hmm. there's a connection there that Melcher is, says that he's, you know, he only ever met him three times. He's like, I'm just a record producer. This guy came up to me like we meet a lot of people kind of thing. I don't really know. Nothing came of it. But if Manson's going up to his house looking for him, there's, there may be more going on there. And apparently um, Sharon Tate was actually there that day and, and was purported to have seen Manson. That scene is right, actually right, right, does right. appear in, in Once Upon a Time oh. in Hollywood. It's the only scene with Manson in the film. So other okay. than that, he's just kind of referred to. He's kind of a looming, a yeah. looming weird presence. And that's the hard thing is there's all these stories or vignettes or moments where it's like, oh, yeah, this happened and this person was mm -hmm. there and that person was there. And then somebody else says something and they're like, no, that never happened. Or, oh, no, I only saw him to, you know, right. it's hard to piece through. But we're just getting different ideas opposed to the Helter Skelter theory. And so another thing, just talking about more people that knew and weird connections. So Carol Wilson is Dennis's ex-wife, Dennis Wilson of the Beach Boys. And she was talked to. The Carols, who are uh, Carol and then Jacobson, who's the, the other guy of the Beach Boys, mm -hmm. they had interviews and they're in like, you know, being pre-interviewed for evidence and whatnot. But the man Wilsons, the husbands were never interviewed. And it was like, well, why are the wives records listed? Huh? Yeah. You know, Neil's search of like trying to find stuff. That's a big yeah. thing that comes up is like, where are these documents? Where are these files? We'll see cases where he's looking for some is like, why? Why did they talk to the wives? But they also must have talked to the husbands. But where are but their where is that? documents of what they said? Oh, weird. Kind of thing. So there's lots of stuff like that. But Carol Wilson, who was Dennis's ex-wife, she had pursued a romance with Jay Sebring, who oh, was the no. hairdresser oh, in the no. thing. Just like a completely other person. So it's like everybody is oh, mixed God. up with everybody else. Yeah. So Melcher keeps denying him. But the biggest thing that comes out of this house and th this interwoven web of Hollywood stuff is this guy, Danny DiCarlo. He had the second most amount of time on the stand besides the lady who was part of the family who got immunity and spoke about all the murders and everything. Mm -hmm. So this guy is a huge witness for everybody. He was a like a motorcyclist kind of guy, obviously into drugs and the mob, yeah, who knows yeah, what. Yeah. He was in the family. O'Neill goes back and looks at Bugliosi interviewing him before the trial and whatnot. And because this is evidence, like it has to be shared between the prosecution and the defendant, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah, Th yeah. That's like part of the court thing. So he finds, I, I don't know exactly how he gets into all the different files and whatever, but there's things where he's talking about how Melcher visited after the murder, hmm. the family, talked oh. to Charles Manson oh, yeah. at the ranch. And this stuff is crossed out in those things, but he can still read it. And he's oh. like, well, why 
would this stuff be crossed out? And then he goes and talks to, you know, the defense yeah. about it. And they were like, no, 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 we never knew anything about that. Oh, my God. And, of course, Bugliosi's like, I don't know anything about that. But he's like, but this is your handwriting. And he's oh like, well, God. you know, things, you know, slip past. But that, that, like I said at the very beginning, is like, oh, so potentially Bugliosi lied, which is perjury, which then makes him complicit in something. And then also he can be tried Ooh, for the same that crime. That slides real fast. Yeah. So that was, I felt like, the biggest thing yeah. that he found that is potentially also can be contested by a number of factors that yeah. may or may not. I mean, who knows Absolutely. how these things happened or what, but there's documents in his handwriting that are crossed out saying Melcher was there, wow. according to this guy who was a part of the family who yeah. saw him. Of course, and then in the in-court testimony, they, Melcher is asked multiple times, when did you see Manson? He was like, only three times before the murders. He never, you know, he explicitly says, right. I never saw him after. But the Beach Boys tour manager, who O'Neill talks to, oh, knew no. that he was wrapped up <laughs> in the Manson stuff and says that he remembers a time where Melcher was over there and asked Manson for forgiveness on his knees. Wow. Wow. I mean, who knows who you can trust? I mean, yeah. this is the tour man. But like this guy says it. And then this Danny DiCarlo, who is the second most interviewed person, says that he was there after. Good Lord. Um, so now this is O'Neill's first year of reporting. The deadline has way passed. Oh, God. <laughs> you know, all this oh, stuff that we're geez. talking about. So he, he calls Vince and he brings up Melcher. And Vince is like, oh, you got in touch with Melcher. Surprise. That was the only person that he's that he cares about. And he actually does get in touch with Melcher. He's kind of shady. They meet on the roof and he's like, I could throw your briefcase off. He's clearly like incensed by something, has some problems mm. with mm -hmm. being forced to talk about stuff. And then he goes on a wild left turn and is like, well, you know, we could work together. You could like co-author my memoirs. Like he sees that this, oh. this O'Neill guy is getting somewhere yeah. and wants to use that leverage to use him for something and then he's like you know we'll make so much more money oh. off of my story if you write it as opposed to whatever the heck you're doing with all this journalism stuff but he doesn't take him up yeah. on it and then never talks to him again <laughs> and a lot of these things where he's like oh yeah we never talked again it's because these people are dying you know yeah. like this thing yeah. they were in their 30s in the in the 70s so they're going but what happens is he shows k who is the other da the uh, Bugliosi notes with the stuff crossed out saying that Melcher was there after the murder and knew things. And uh, that DA is shocked. He's like, no, I didn't know about this. Oh, my gosh. And he was like, would this have been enough to overturn the verdict? Yeah. And he was like, yeah. yeah. Yes. Because not only did the DA prosecuting the case lie about evidence, but he also didn't share it with the defendant. Oh, my God. You know, and then there are people on the stand, the witness that had the actual information, if that was true. Then Melcher was lying on the stand about not knowing it. So that the the story that was bought and sold to the public is really just a yeah. fun narrative. <laughs> Potentially. Yeah. But it just more, there's, there's more to the story about the Hollywood characters mm -hmm. interacting with the Manson family and us not knowing or knowing what right. everybody got involved it's, it's with. So one major echo, which I want to share with, with our listeners, the character of Cliff Booth is an amalgamation, both Rick Dalton and Cliff Booth are an amalgamation of old Hollywood characters, mm -hmm. very real. Uh, I would say that the biggest influence is Burt Reynolds and his stuntman, Hal Needham, the uh, the director of Smokey and the Bandit, there's a wonderful documentary called The Bandit about their relationship. So if you've seen Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, you like Cliff Booth and Rick Dalton hanging out, 
there's a whole documentary just about that beautiful relationship the in real, real life, people. the real yeah. people. But another echo that, that brings it into the nexus to the Manson murders is there's a scene in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood when the Cliff Booth Pitt character takes it, one of the Manson girls, back out to Spawn Ranch, gives her a ride back out there because him being a stuntman, he's like, oh man, I used to shoot movies out there. I know George, I'll take you out there. Mm -hmm. um, and they're, just for people that don't know, the ranch is where the Manson family cult was living out in the desert. Mm -hmm. uh, I think the actual ones, actual Spawn Ranch is gone now, but there was a sister ranch that's almost identical that's just over the hill and that's where Once Upon a Time was shot. So it okay. looks basically exactly the same. Um, but anyway, the Cliff Booth character gives this uh, Manson girl a ride back out to Spawn Ranch. The whole scene is set up on, and I think much of the movie, to be honest, is set up about vanity, expectations, and authenticity. So in this scene, when you're dropped into it, you're really judging the Manson family. We know who they are. We know, you know, what's about to happen. Yeah. Um, and so we're on edge. It's set up like a horror scene. And Cliff Booth being kind of a, a big, cocky, no, he's really not worried about anything. He keeps asking about... George. He wants to see George. Where's George? George mm -hmm. Bond, the owner of this ranch. He still lives up here, right? They don't want to let him see it. Mm -hmm. You start thinking maybe something's happened to George. Long story short, he gets to George's house. George is there. They have a conversation. George knows that people are there. It's not a great situation, but it's fine. Mm -hmm. But in real the point, life. The point being is that the Cliff Booth character does get in a very vulnerable situation. And the, the echo here is that there was a stuntman that also lived at Spawn Ranch that did help take care of George before the Manson family moved in. He was there during the entire thing. His name was Donald Shea. Mm -hmm. And so on August 16th, there was a raid on Spawn Ranch. Uh, the LAPD, and there might you might have more on this. Uh, but yeah, they all, yeah I, I would love to hear more on this. But uh, basically what I know is that they raid Spawn Ranch believing that the Manson family is is stealing and converting VWs into dune buggies for God knows what mm -hmm. for however that's profitable. I have no idea. Uh, but so that is the dune a, buggy business in the sixties. Yeah, it's was lit. <laughs> um, so they take Manson and twenty five of the Manson family uh, in and book them, and they uh, let them out. Not too much longer, but they're not in there for too long, and mm -hmm. they and they do let them out. But as soon as they let them out, Donald Shea goes missing because it's widely believed that Donald Shea has something to do with leading the police back to Spawn Ranch to get them all arrested. Four um, months later, mm -hmm. right. And his remains are not found until 1977, almost a decade later. Yeah. Um, it, for all of the Tarantino people listening, there actually was a Spawn Ranch stuntman that did look after George mm. and was murdered by the family. Interesting. Yeah. So the next thing tying into that in the book that he goes into, we've moved a little bit away tangentially from the Hollywood side mm -hmm. of things and are now focusing on the police and the actual catching of the criminals. Maybe there are new angles to that story mm. and that people are a little confused by. So just chronologically for this O'Neill character, he's interviewed over 500 people. Yeah. He's in deep. <laughs> Oh, the uh, the magazine keeps pushing the deadline. They're just like giving him money every month. They're like, cool that you know the the four, the thirty. See, that's always what I wonder. It's like, how do people pay their bills when these things just keep going and going and going? Yeah. I love that that actually. Is. Yeah, <laughs> they're just like, sure, keep going. Thank this God. will work out. It's past the anniversary. This has nothing to do with anything anymore. I hope but, uh, that the company shut down to then only fund this. Yeah. <laughs> 
so well we'll get into how in the world the book got actually <laughs> but uh yeah so that there was this guy gary hinman who was the first actual murder from the manson family in july and then the sharon tate and all that stuff didn't happen until august mm-hmm. and people thought maybe it was a black panther setup again because there was pig written in blood on the wall like very similar to these other two murders and you're like well why the people that are working on this case this is like really really similar <laughs> to what's going Man, on with these. look at this yeah, pig in blood and people you know like but they caught the guy who did the murder in july it was bobby oh, who was one of the people of the manson family no. So it was like, well, why don't you just ask him right. what he was doing? <laughs> so that's a big thing. So it didn't get connected because there was two different things. It was the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Office and the Los Angeles Police Department. And so this uh, is where some of the conspiracy and uh, thoughts God. comes in. So the Sheriff's Office was dealing with the Hinman case and the Police Department was dealing with the Sharon Tate, blah, blah, blah. So like you said, on August 16th, remember the murders happened on the 8th and the 9th. On August 16th, there was the raid on the farm and the ranch and all of that for this auto theft ring. But the whole family was released in three days for because they said the warrant was misdated. That's what's said in Helter Skelter, is that oh. they got released because the warrant was misdated, so it was gotcha. an illegal raid. Gotcha. And so the question then, you know, that comes up that people have about this is like, why does Manson keep getting out of trouble when clearly <laughs> there's all of these connections that come through based on all these different police departments? And they had wiretapped Bobby, and this is illegal, and so... O'Neill found this out through this detective who's now retired or whatever uh, and didn't want his name in the book. And then afterwards, he was like, no, put me in the book. Um, <laughs> but they had wiretapped him and he had said, but this Bobby guy had said in talking to the family, they were like, he'll leave a sign. So basically, they were trying to imitate themselves to free their own guy, like do another murder. Yeah. To, but then the police didn't even make that connection, allegedly. The, the question that... O'Neill brings up is like, why was Manson constantly, like I said, left alone? Like, wasn't there enough evidence to arrest him? He was skipping p- parole. They found machine guns and weapons on the ranch. And like I said, the warrant was misdated. So he, O'Neill, classic O'Neill, goes into the LASO files, which is completely unsanctioned. It was some guy that let him access these files. And then later on, I'm just he was getting mad because like when I don't pay my car registration, <laughs> like they're after me and they don't stop. So yeah. how... How does Charlie Manson just like, ah, you know, doesn't yeah. matter here. I got all these machines. I'm God. You're God. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Maybe it was, maybe it was the police department. I don't know. So we'll, we'll get into the even more conspiracy. But so he goes in and the warrant was not misdated. He saw the, the warrant in the sheriff's office files. <laughs> so that in Helter Skelter <laughs> was not. My God, it's not even true. Yeah. So there's another reason. <laughs> <laughs> there's a book called The Family, which was the other, if you want to read another book about it. Mm. So there's Helter Skelter and The Family is like the second biggest book about mm-hmm. all the stuff that's going on. And that book does not cite that the warrant was misdated as the reason that the raid ended up not working out, but that there was insufficient evidence to take them in. Mm -hmm. And that has some credibility because there's 27 adults. They can't prove who stole anything. There's just stuff lying around. And they also can't prove Manson because it's not like you don't sleep with your car keys when you go to bed. He didn't have anything on him that was like, oh, you did this. Right. Like they just went in and there was stuff and then there was these people and they were like, well, how do we know who did what? Yeah. I'm God. You're God. But then on August 24th, Manson got arrested again. Because he, he was, he, there was a felony pot charge and trespassing, and a, he had this underage girl with him, and then the girl got charged, and Manson no. got released. It was like, how does he keep well, evading? Apparently, I'm God tonight. I'm sorry. Bye. Yeah. So, O'Neill goes and talks to the judge. He has no recollection. And then he talks to the detective involved. He talks to the district attorney, and he talks to the parole officer. 
and everybody's passing the buck and being like, well, they didn't tell me that this happened, and he was the one actually responsible for this. My gosh. Um, I didn't need, I didn't know it was this messy. So that is all the stuff about the raid. And so then the theory, which we're getting into tinfoil stuff, is that Manson was an informant to a higher party. The CIA. Interesting. Yep. And like, why? Yep. yep. And he was being used for other stuff. And so it's like, well, you can't take him in if he's infiltrating, whether unwittingly or they're just in observing him. Not like Manson doesn't even have to necessarily know that this is going on or that he's like directly going into a safe house and reporting stuff. But right. they're like keeping him in the fold so that they can run intelligence off of what he's doing and right. where he's going. Right. And so they can't do that if he's in jail for 30 years. Um, can you imagine them doing it and him like barely being aware of it? Yeah. <laughs> huh? Uh, oh, you guys were watching? And they accidentally end up keeping like making him look more and more like a real prophet, like an actual, like, like mm -hmm. he has tapped into some sort of higher power or something. It's just yeah. like, well, no, it was just uh, the CIA gonna let him out of jail a bunch <laughs> Well, there's a little bit of uh, justice done at the end here for you. Baca, who is the guy who was in charge of the LASO, the sheriff's office, yeah. O'Neill went back in 2000 to try and look at the files again. And they were like, you can't do this. We don't know how this happened. We don't know how you got it. So he couldn't He couldn't go back and look at the stuff. He was like, well, I got some photocopies, but I want like, there's so much here that obviously isn't here. But that guy who just sort of made fun of him and was like, this is Hollywood fluff, get out of my life. He retired in 2014 and then was found in 2017 for obstructing an FBI investigation into criminal abuse oh. in the Los Angeles wow. prison system. And then he went to federal prison for it. <laughs> so it was like, well, he kind of got, yeah. there was clearly yeah. something going yep. on there and he got his. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> so good. There's one more character who gets his own chapter in this book that doesn't really lead anywhere but is involved hmm. and leads us to believe, again, another angle of there being more to the story. And the title of the chapter was, Who Was Reeve Whitson? And so there was... I have no idea. Uh, neither did I. <laughs> and I tried to look him up, and it's also the name of a famous golfer. <laughs> like, you can't find anything about him. So this guy, what happened was, Tate's photographer, Sharon Tate, the woman who yeah. got murdered, photographer said that they got news about the murder and what was going on, then turned on the radio and listened to what was going on. And then it was just nonstop news coverage for yeah, years afterwards. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But according to them and their timeline, they got news via a phone call and it was 90 minutes before the maid found the, the thing. And then O'Neill's like, who called you? And they were like, oh, Reeve Whitson. He was like, who the hell, you know, who's, who's Reeve Whitson? Whitson? So apparently Reeve Whitson is this undercover CIA agent who just knew everybody everywhere all the time, all over the world, and is just weaving his way like Forrest Gump in and out of world historical what? events. What? Um, and allegedly- Where's the book about that? Yeah. I want um, that. Because <laughs> like in O'Neill talking to people, he talked to the general manager of the Lakers at the time who was a friend of him, but also the president of MGM who was like, oh yeah, Reeve was the strangest man in the world. Oh my God. But then he's oh also God. involved with this stuff. And allegedly, you know, Manson and, and some other things was like, yeah, he was there after the murders to help rearrange the bodies. Like, what is he doing there? And who is he working for? And then that's how he was able to give the call. And why is he calling Sharon Tate's photographer, of all people, to oh, discuss things? Good Lord. So he talked to his ex-wife. Uh, who's No, uh, <laughs> O'Neill. No, okay. got to talk to me. He's dead. Yeah, okay. Um, I was like, <laughs> yeah. But he talked to his ex-wife in Sweden, and she was like, yeah, he was definitely in the CIA. But again, no paper. I mean, they're designed to like tamp it down. Yeah. So there's no evidence. There's no, you know. 
The only thing that he could find, which is a very interesting corroboration of these stories, there was a book that was not made called Five Down on Cielo Drive. And it was going to be the competitor to Helter Skelter, the Mm. book, because they were being written immediately when the thing happened in tandem. And the three authors, you have to track with me on this, was one of them was an LAPD investigator. Got it. The other one was Tate's father. Got it. Who did his own little private investigation into stuff and as a personal connection. And then the third one was an FBI agent who was involved in Manson's stuff. So a great perspective on what was going on. So, but then there was this guy named Walter Kern who was in league with Tate's father who was helping him as a private investigator. Okay. So O'Neill interviews the FBI agent who was one of the co-authors of the book. And he confirms that Walter Kern who was the guy helping Tate's father, was actually Reeve Whitson uh, uh, as an alias whoa. going undercover and working on stuff to try and figure things out and just being involved. I hope Reeve Whitson is a CIA alias that just gets used. <laughs> For everything know, every, all the time. Yeah, so then there's this whole other history of this non-existent person. Right. Like uh, J.T. Leroy almost, you know. <laughs> yeah, he's like we actually 55 people. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Um, he can and be so, anywhere and any time. And any time a CIA agent needs to get out of a sticky spot, say, who are you? Reeve Whitson. Sir. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> They're just trying to throw that out. <laughs> so it's just like he knows everybody and is somehow involved in all of this stuff. But then also after the 70s, there is more of a record of what's going on, potentially because he got dropped by the CIA or he's just doing more and needs a bunch more covers. But he was an advisor to the chairman of one of the largest corporations in Germany. He started a plan and was on the board for a company that was making a monorail from Las Vegas to Pasadena. He was involved in the creation of a theme park in Scotland. These are not the same people. Also the Miss Universe pageants. (laughs) No way. And uh, weapons manufacturing. Impossible. And childproof medicine bottles. Improbable. All of these things (laughs) he had his name on. And so this is where O'Neill's like, I'm going way too off the deep end with this guy. Like he's like, yeah, that's where I am. I'm too like, much of a mystery man. And also, if he was such a good CIA agent, why does he have all this stuff associated with him? Right. And like, why do people? Why it does doesn't everybody, exist. Why does everybody know that he did that? <laughs> so it's a little diversion from the oh, story. I love it. No, this is. But incredible. it's like this is how it goes. I love this. And who is this guy? And how does he fit in? So now he's like, well, if I if I want to really understand what's going on, because he was ten years old when this happened. O'Neill. So he's like, we need to understand the politics and pressure of California in the yeah. 60s. And this is when we're going deep into the conspiracy of Ooh, the, of the federal buckle up, ladies and gentlemen. Mm-hmm. But I didn't know anything about California in the 60s. But there are two intelligence operations, one from the FBI called Co-Intel Pro, and then one from the CIA called Chaos, which both of these got revealed after the 70s that they were going down. And they were designed in these official documents by J. Edgar Hoover and all this stuff for discrediting the left-wing movements. Oh, my god! Subversifying the the Black Panthers and planting false gossip and starting fights and all of that kind of stuff. Spying, not sanctioned at all and completely illegal within the bounds of the United States. When has anyone ever done anything like that, Taylor? (laughs) Well, especially for the CIA, because the CIA is not allowed to do anything domestic. And here they are. All in it. It says they kept tabs on over 300,000 people. Whoa. All the files destroyed. And of (laughs) course. Don't know anything about it. Of course. But then the question becomes of this, like we said, like maybe Manson wasn't entirely complicit, but was he an informant? I feel like he could have easily been an accidental informant. I feel like he could have been giving them plenty of information totally unbeknownst to himself. Mm -hmm. Because we said like there was- Oh, we found a perfect idiot. 
And because... <laughs> Let's just stick next to him. Yeah. He'll tell us anything. Liberal white Hollywood was the explicit target for a lot of these efforts where they're like, mm-hmm. oh, this is creating an uprising of these left-wing, potentially communist yeah. movements. How do we suppress that? Or how do we incite confusion and chaos and misinformation and all of that? That's fascinating. Um, was that involved in the helter-skelter motive? And could the DA's office wield its power to control the narrative of these things? If there were even federal organizations going yeah. up above to be like, hey, don't talk about these right. these kind of things. Ooh, makes you um, wonder. Mm-hmm. That's cool. So then now that we're talking about the DA's office wielding its power, there's something called the lawyer swap. Oh. And I didn't know about this either. Oh, like so- wife swap mm-hmm. on ABC? <laughs> exactly like that. Because <laughs> we know that there was the main lady who was the witness and got immunity. But there was actually a lady before that named Linda Atkins, mm. who was the one that broke the story and got him found. Because she was caught elsewhere and then went to jail and then bragged about the murders. And then the person who was in her cell was like, oh, we got to talk about this. So then she called the police and then they they got her. Yeah. So she had a lawyer named Condon and he was removed. O'Neill looks into the paperwork. There's no reason for it, but he was replaced by Caballero, who was a guy who worked for the DA. Okay. And basically there was confusion behind her and her story and how she was the person who revealed it. And then there was some deal that was made. There's nothing on paper about it. And then she ends up revoking it and then can't be the one in court testimony because she denies the stuff that she said. Good Lord. But the problem is Atkins, there was a piece that was made for the LA times that was 6,000 words about what was going on. And it completely ruined a lot of stuff because now you have a, you can't have an unbiased jury because you're like trying to withhold yeah. the story, or whatever. Yeah. But then some journalist talked to her uh. And revealed it. And why is Caballero, the lawyer, not being held in contempt of court for releasing evidence? Like, it's his client. Well, just the sheer messiness of all of this kind of stuff, just, it makes you think there must be more Mm -hmm. to this. Right. This this just does not happen in normal due process. (laughs) Uh, This is not how it works. So, why did it work like that this time? No, it it definitely leads you to think that there's more behind it. It makes me want to think, yeah. So, O'Neill looks into the person who wrote the Atkins story that then got published and he found out that that was actually ghostwritten by somebody else. And the person who ghostwrote it knew Bugliosi, who's the DA, who okay. wrote Helter Skelter, and was going to write a book with Bugliosi, was in, in, the, yeah. in the thing, about another case that Bugliosi had worked on. But then he got the Helter Skelter case, he got the Charles Manson right. case, and wrote that book instead. <laughs> Which, there's no, oh... Collude, you know, problems, right. but it's just like interesting to see yeah. all of the connections between these. Somebody who can write a book, yeah. Somebody <laughs> knows something. <laughs> yeah, somebody's gonna write a book. That's for sure. So now, at this point, Tom O'Neill, the magazine that he's supposed to be writing this article for, <laughs> goes under. Uh, they're not because, even a company. Yeah, well, I don't imagine why they're letting all these writers take a decade or more to figure out their pieces. <laughs> yeah. So then he's like, "Well, I'm gonna turn it into a book," and he's got to write a proposal for it. But again, the big question is Atkins, this this other lady, was charged with violating probation, and then it was revoked. And like, why? Oh, because she was involved with Manson. And then there was an Oregon judge that was involved in it that was based on where, you know, she was from and where it happened. And he released her. Oh. I was like, well, there's, what, what is the, okay. how did that happen? It was like, only when she got involved with Manson did this stuff happen. Oh, weird. So then he's like, we got to figure out, well, who was in charge of Manson in this time frame in the early right. 60s when he's bringing all these people together? And it was this guy named Roger Smith, who was his parole officer. And the interesting thing is hardly anybody at all ever 
spoke to Manson's parole. He was the O'Neill is the third reporter to ever talk to him about anything. He was with Manson when he was in San Francisco mm-hmm. in Haight Ashbury. And Manson, they said that he was transferred there from Los Angeles when he moved. But what actually happened is Manson moved and then got transferred. There was no request. Like he just did it. And then they were like, oh, yeah, you're not in LA anymore. Okay, well, we're going to transfer you to this parole officer. Oh, okay. It was like, well, that seems pretty unprecedented. Right. Or like he should be in trouble. He should yeah. be like extradited back yeah. for violating his parole That's instead of just getting weird. it transferred. And so there was a thing where Roger Smith, you know, the parole officers, they get they get a different workload where it's like somebody might have 200 people that they're dealing with. Somebody might have 40 or 50 right. and then somebody might have 25. So he was in the mid range where he had 40 clients. But in this particular moment, he was reduced only down to just one, which was Charles Manson. Nobody else had that. A lot of these parole documents, again, documents, documents, documents. He can't find anything. Right. right. They said that the parole documents were four inches thick for the case. Oh my God. Right. For Helter really? Skelter. Really? But then uh, O'Neill can only find like 167 pages oh, of this stuff. Of course. And some of them, he's got uh, this Roger Smith character praising Manson and, and his client and how like he's really doing well. And at that time that he had sent the letter, Manson was actually in jail. <laughs> like he had been caught and was in jail for something. So it was like clearly... <laughs> What are you talking about? After uh, Manson moves back to L.A., he gets this other parole officer named Barrett who said, oh, Manson has made no progress whatsoever. (laughs) And this guy has 250 parole cases, including Manson. So it's like, how did that – Right. How did it become this freak situation where this Roger Smith guy only has one and it's Manson and he's saying that he's doing great? So now we're going into kind of the drug stuff where Smith – was not only just his parole officer, but had started an amphetamine research project in Haight-Ashbury. Oh, man. And people had said like, oh, yeah, they just met at the clinic for his parole thing. Wow. So now we get into like, how is this Smith character tied into the drug scene and the hippie scene and whatever experiments were going on over there? And he was like, yeah, the parole thing was just a side thing. It was my other job. Okay. And I was really doing this drug stuff. O'Neill goes into how there's too many details, there's too many names, and in this particular case, there's two Smiths in the same place dealing with Manson at the same time. So David Smith is the guy, and he was the the, in charge of the Haight-Ashbury Free Medical Clinic in San Francisco, which is the big thing that happened in the Summer of Love and when people went over there and were dealing with drugs and sex and... O'Neill is saying, like, free just means it was used by researchers. Like, there's nothing free about the Free Medical Clinic. But Bugliosi never mentions any of this stuff in Helter Skelter Hmm. and these people and connections to them. And these are two people who had almost daily exposure to him. Right. These two Smiths, and they had never been asked to testify. But you said that you had looked into some research about his life even before that. There's, uh, if anybody's aware of uh, last podcast on the last, uh, left, they have a, a wonderful Charles uh, Manson family series. So I highly recommend that. But the first part of it, they go into his childhood, which uh, if you don't know anything about Charles Manson other than just his craziness uh, and the murders and, mm-hmm. and that, he actually has a pretty uh, rough outlook on life. And I, and I mean rough as in his father is absolutely unknown, and his birth certificate literally says no name. Mm-hmm. He was born to a prostitute mother and was raised basically on the streets with her and taught basically a life of crime by his mom. And when I think when he was 
I, I'm, I've, I've lost the, the data point now, but yeah. right around 10 or so, she gives him back over to the state. She can't deal with this anymore. She can't yeah. do a kid anymore. And I think I read his, by the age of 35, he had served half of his life in yes, federal prison. Yes. yes. He, and it was like the most amount of time. Up. But it's also, it's like federal prison. It's not just prison or jail. You know, he had spent 18 years before his 35th birthday in federal prison. Yeah. His outlook on life, his outset on life is pretty rough. He was a victim of sexual assault. Molestation. Um, molestation. Stuff, yeah. Um, yeah. Before he was ever even turned over to the state. And then after turned over to the state, he went into boys' homes. And if you don't know anything about Charlie Manson, one of the first things you would know is meeting him is that he would he was tiny. Mm-hmm. He's a very like small five, man. Five, six, I think. And so to survive on the streets and then on your own in a boys' home, you had to get cutthroat. And so that's kind of the tone of his whole persona. And and if you're wondering how this person came to be, well, it's out of a this type of context. Mm-hmm. That is quite, I think, astounding. Um, it's almost like a supervillain origin yeah, story. It really, yeah. it really is. Yeah. It, it, seems, it seems almost too perfect. Perhaps there's more about, if there is a, an alternative narrative here about what really happened and what Manson is really involved with and how and why, I would love to know where that nexus is in his life of how he were to have gotten right. involved. Well, that's um, where a lot of people are saying, or at least O'Neill is in this book talking about how, okay, well, in the summer of love in right. San Francisco with right. the drugs. And it's like, cause that's was a big part of the Helter Skelter mode. It was like, oh yeah, they were being coerced and their minds were being altered and it was brainwashing because of all of the LSD and speed and everything that were, that they were taking. And was that started? Right. And maybe perhaps, promoted in this Haight-Ashbury Free Medical Clinic with, perchance, his parole officer who was also working there studying amphetamine research. Then we go into the most conspiratorial element, which is great that we're ending there. And the chapter is called Mind Control. And he had to send this proposal to his publisher of being like, I think the JFK assassination is also involved and CIA mind control. (laughs) He's like, that's a great way to start an email. Well. Do your publisher. (laughs) But there was this guy, Dr. Lewis Jolly West, who worked also at the Haight-Ashbury Free Medical Clinic and was known with doing experiments with LSD. He was the same guy who examined Jack Ruby after oh, the JFK no assassination. Way. Yeah. Wow. At the same time as Manson was there. So if anybody doesn't know, Jack Ruby is the man that shot uh, Lee Harvey Oswald, the purported assassinator of uh, mm-hmm. John F. Kennedy. And then afterwards, after he was psychoanalyzed by this Jolly West character, Good was found to be insane Lord. and crazy. The same guy who is doing experiments with LSD and mind control. Also, this Lewis Jolly West later found out was linked and was involved in the MK Ultra. No way. Of course. <laughs> yeah. Of course. Of course he was. That makes so yeah. much sense. That makes so much sense. Yeah. And so he had a house in Haight-Ashbury where he had tasked grad students and was doing experiments against people's knowledge. Oh, incredible. And pretending to be a hippie. And if you're interested in the LSD stuff, we have wow. an episode about it, How to Change Your Mind. We talk a little bit about yes, MK yes, Ultra, yes. that kind of thing. This is also bizarre because O'Neill finds boxes of this Jolly West guy's stuff at UCLA because afterwards he worked at University of Oklahoma and then he had gone to UCLA. He'd done a bunch of stuff and he was in MK Ultra secretively. He finds in these boxes of documents that he was corresponding with Gottlieb, who was the guy who was running MK Ultra, and finds differences in the documents from the Senate hearing versus the actual back and forth with him and Gottlieb about the experiments for mind control, which are more incriminating because in the documents that I guess nobody had looked at, 
this Jolly West guy was like, we did it. We figured it out. We know how to implant memories and do, and oh do so. God. Versus in the Senate hearing, it was just like about they were studying the effects of LSD. There was never like any actual proof, but in these letters back and forth. And maybe they were just being, I mean, who, wow. you can't say whether the letters are true or whatever, but according to Wes, he was like, we're doing it, doing it, doing it. We're figuring it out. <laughs> There was also then he goes into there's a guy named Jimmy Shaver who murdered a little girl in the 50s on an Air Force base and completely didn't know anything and had no memory of it and had blood all over him and walked up out of a ditch. And uh, this is the same place where West was studying the MK Ultra stuff in the 50s in Oklahoma. So this is where this girl died? Mm-hmm. Wow. And this Jimmy Shaver guy who was just an Air Force guy, wife and kids, no history of violence, slaughtered this little girl, comes out of the ditch, is like, I don't know what happened walks up to people in a bar. This oh is the same gosh. place where this Jolly West guy was working before he went to Haight-Ashbury. O'Neill goes back there to look at the medical records for the hospital, and uh, the file is missing for the names S-A through S-T, which is Shaver. <laughs> and so... Who knows anything about anything? Again, you can't That's you can't consp- you can't say and this is the hard part about this book. He's like you can't say anything did or did not happen because there's just so much Lost missing. The time. Like yeah. you can't yeah, find yeah. the smoking gun, but also the fact that there isn't something there. No, that we shouldn't be willing to be more comfortable with the fact that maybe the idea of Helter Skelter, the narrative that was kind of sold off to the public, and then that's yeah. colored this debate in the general discussion until the last 20, 15, 10 years, that perhaps there is far more to it than just that. Yeah. Um, that maybe it's not wrong, but it is just really a simplification and, and misdirection. Mm-hmm. And so now it's 2005. He's got the proposal for this book after doing all of this research. My God. Losing his mind, losing his friends and family. And so the publisher sues him. Because, <laughs> no way, really. Because they're like, uh, you didn't, you didn't return anything in. Like, we gave you an advance and we gave you a timeline. It's been 12 years. And you didn't do it. So uh, then he gets a different publisher, obviously, <laughs> and has the lawsuit and all that stuff. And he's still And he's still going through it. And, and also because he's like, oh, well, it's 2005 and I failed that. You know what I mean? So, like, yeah. well, maybe we'll hit 2009, the 40th anniversary. Right, right, right. right. Clearly, that didn't happen either because he was like, there was more stuff going on with the cases and different people that were coming up. And like you said, you know, homeboy at the ranch, his his remains were not found until the 70s. Like there was things going on. There was a thing with this guy, Filippo Tenerelli, who they found more information about later, this murder that was like considered a suicide. And then, oh, no, maybe it was attributed to the Manson. So he didn't want to come out with the book and then have the smoking gun of the information be revealed right as he's more. So he's biding his time and still researching and going back and like all these other people, but also like I said, people are dying off. (laughs) Yeah. They reopened that case then for that person who had allegedly committed suicide. So then he goes and talks to those people and then they shut it immediately. Whoa, really? Yeah. And so he's like, well, clearly stuff is going on and basically goes into continuing to interview people until the very end when the book comes out now. He's like, the question that I hate the most, people are like, well, what do you think happened? And he's like, I don't know. You know, like, I'm not a conspiracy theorist and I'm, I'm just he's recording just interv- it up, man. I'm just he's recording just like interviews. turning it up. Yeah. And just hundreds and hundreds of binders and 60 full legal pads of notes. Well, it sounds like a, this is ripe for a, a good doc series. I'll tell you that. Mm-hmm. There seems to be a thread here that I would be surprised if we're not seeing this turned into some sort of Netflix making a murderer type-esque, you know, 
retrospective on the Manson, the Manson idea, the Manson uh, myth, I would say. It seems primed for it, and 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 as before, we started today. You were telling me about the the, the idea that, that that the book contained a lot of the journalist's personal story, which we have talked privately about, just being like less into. But actually, mm-hmm. it, it is it became a bit interesting there at the end of just f- hearing how it, it's the case is actually still developing and or could be under the surface. Mm-hmm. Um, and he almost feels like he has an obligation to continue to look into stuff and to continue to search through these files and continue to right. pull things out because who else is doing it? And it sounds like he's not exactly like what we just said. He's not really trying to point at this happened or, or another narrative. He's not trying mm-hmm. to, 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 you know, postulate some new idea, you know, as and saying this is what happened. All he's doing is turning up everything, everything that nobody's ever heard of. And yeah. kind of posing the question back to everyone else is like, well, what do you think of all of this? Mm-hmm. Which I think is really fascinating. And that's yeah. why I say I think a filmmaker is probably going to come in and, and snatch it and, up here. Yeah. And, yeah. And, he was just saying, I haven't found the truth, only that the official story isn't. Right. You just need to get this guy paired up with somebody who who can actually follow and piece together a narrative. This, mm-hmm. I, I feel like this is almost just beginning. Yeah. He did, yeah, he did talk to uh, Charlie Manson for five minutes in 2000. Really? He did get an interview with him. Wow. And uh, he said he just spoke in riddles and confusion and nonsense yeah. the whole time. But there was one point where he did say, because he was trying to get stuff from him, he was, he didn't want to just like goof around on the phone, right, <laughs> you know, in right. prison or whatever. And uh, he said, Charles Manson said, the bottom line is that you want information. And he said, Exactly. But didn't get any of it from him, mm-hmm. you know, and that mm-hmm. I think sums up the whole book. Is like he was just trying to get information. Yeah, but yeah, this was this was super insightful because I would have never guessed that there was that much room for more to mm-hmm. this story. To the fact that where maybe everything we've heard is just to pass off distraction. Really great stuff. This was cool. this was really cool. Announcement today. Mm-hmm. Check out our lit Instagram, y'all. <laughs> We got hot memes. That's uh, all it is, is yeah, silliness. T- it's, it's actually hilarious, the ups and downs with us. We'll get 5,000 likes on a thing, and then out of nowhere. I don't know how to... We don't know what I'm this magic I'm not teasing the I'm just putting is. tags. Yeah. And then we'll get, you know, 17 likes on something that I that, think is yeah. absolutely hilarious. That I'll even comment back on and be like, hey, this looks pretty good. <laughs> but nobody sees that. <laughs> but yeah, so check out our, our Instagram. It is uh, illiteratepod, at illiteratepod on Instagram. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, check us out. It's just silliness. Every day. Just like us. <laughs> anyway. We want to thank you guys so much for listening. See you next week. See ya.